first seven verses of Exodus chapter 1, Moses kind of recaps for us all of Genesis. And he does it kind of in this inverse order, right? So he starts off talking about how the, the people of Israel come down into, into Egypt. And it reminds us of what goes on in Genesis chapters 46 and following when Joseph, who has been sold by his brothers into slavery, now becomes, a, uh, um, becomes one who's in power in Egypt. And then as he moves down, you see the faithful hand of God blessing the people of Israel. And we're reminded of Genesis 12 and Genesis 17, how God keeps his faithful covenant with his people. How he promised Abram, I'm going to make you a mighty nation. I will bless you. I will bless you. And everyone who, who uh, you bless, I will bless them. And everyone that you curse or that curses you, I will curse. We see that the, the, the fulfillment of that promise get lived out throughout the entirety of the book of Exodus, uh, especially in relation to Pharaoh and, and Pharaoh's armies. Those that curse the people of the Lord, God curses. And then you see um, it come down into that last verse, verse 7, where it, um, Moses talks about the fact that the people of Israel were fruitful and they, they increased greatly. They multiplied and they filled the whole land and were reminded of creation. When God says to Adam and Eve, I want you to be fruitful, I want you to multiply. I want you to, to fill the earth, I want you to subdue it. I want you to be my representatives everywhere you are and everywhere you go. I want you to fill the land with my image. Fill the earth with my image. And so Moses reaches back into Genesis to set a context for Exodus, which again is just the continuation of the story of Genesis, Exodus, and then going forth. And so as we look at this passage today, it also serves as kind of a bridge passage into, um, into the bulk of the book. It kind of sets some context for the rest of the narratives that come and follow this. Um, but at the same time, I think there's some important things that we see in this. And so if you've got a Bible, Exodus chapter 1, uh, verses 8 and following. Now there was, arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with, their, with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel, Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and in brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of, one of whom was named Sifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Let's pray. Father, we come in the name of Jesus, your Son, 
And we give You honor and we give You praise because You are the one true God. You are the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You are the, you are the God that the Scriptures teach us about and reveal to us. You are, you are the, the, the God who sent Your one and only Son, Jesus, in the form of a man who would live a life uh, that we couldn't live and who would then die a death that each of us deserved, bursting forth out of a tomb, uh, raising again to new life, uh, giving us the hope of resurrection and the hope of reconciliation with you. God, you are a glorious God. And even in the midst of hardship and, and turmoil, you are still faithful. Your word tells us this and teaches us this over and over again. So even as we look at this text, God, which sets up context, uh, which describes faithful uh, people of yours and describes your faithfulness, I pray that we would look deeply into it and see the way that you're trying to shape and form our lives, um, Lord, by a work of your Spirit. We thank you, we praise you in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Jordan. Um, I get the fact that there's people in this room that don't know who I am, and uh, I'm one of the elders down at Missio Church uh, in Syracuse, and uh, just excited to see and hear what God's doing here. Uh, excited to see all of you. I recognize that uh, it used to be I would come in and I would know everybody here, and now that's not the case, and that's a good thing. But nonetheless, there's my, there's my spiel. Um, as we look at this text, uh, in my mind, there's, there's three kind of acts in these um, uh, in this in this short uh, pericope, you see uh, Pharaoh and the dealings of Pharaoh and the the activity of Pharaoh, right? You see the dealings of the the midwives, uh, Shifra and Pua, right? Uh, I got to be honest with you, those those sound like ugly girl names to me, but um, but nonetheless, we're going to honor Shifra and Pua because God honors them. And then and then you have um, the the acts of God, right? The faithful dealings of, of, of the Lord God. Um, and, and what we have here in this context is we have, uh, we have a Pharaoh. Uh, most scholars believe that his name, you know, whatever his name is doesn't really matter, right? There's, there's debate as to, as to what the name of this Pharaoh is. He's the Pharaoh that precedes the Pharaoh that Moses deals with primarily, right? Scholars think his name is Seti. Um, uh, if you go with a later date, um, if you go with an earlier date, I can't remember his name. It's probably the earlier guy, but it, it doesn't really matter who he is, right? Um, but this is a Pharaoh that doesn't know Joseph, right? So what, what, what we believe happened is that um, uh, when Joseph came into power, he, he didn't rule Egypt, but he came into power in Egypt, that he was part of, of, a, of a kingdom uh, of foreigners, right, that, that came down. The Hiscus people came down into Egypt. They were foreigners, and they ended up ruling over the Egyptian empire. And so the Egyptians themselves were, were subject to these foreigners in their own land. And after a long period of time, hundreds of years, they were finally um, pushed out. And so most scholars believe that, that, that um, Joseph served un under this foreign regime and that when they finally got pushed out, that, that no pharaoh trusted or, or would entrust himself to foreigners again. And so when we see that this Pharaoh didn't know Joseph, it shouldn't surprise us that he would be then distrustful at the same time of, of the people of Israel. That, that this nation living within a nation, right? And, and it's a nation that's ever increasing and ever growing. This nation living within a nation would, would cause him great dread and great fear. A year and a half ago or so, I was in um, Dubai, and Dubai's in a country called the United Arab Emirates, right? And so this little tiny country, it's really made up of seven tribes, I think, I think it's seven tribes, 
um, of, of Emirati people, and, um, and only 15% of the people that live in the United Arab Emirates are actually Emirati. The rest of them are from all over the world. Uh, the majority, the largest group of people, 45% are Indians, right? And so what's interesting is that, like, in my mind as I was there, I was like, why don't the Indians just take over? Like, there's more of them. They're everywhere. Why don't they just take over? Well, the Emiratis, they got the power because they got all the money and they got the oil, right? And so this small group of people, at any point, um, they, they could be overthrown because they're the minority in their own nation. And so they rule over these Indians by, by exploiting them financially and things like that. And so you have, you have they're able to, to, uh, to kind of suppress any uprising because of the power and the influence and the, and the money um, and, and, and all that comes with it that they wield. And that's kind of a, a similar situation that we have here in Exodus 1. Um, the, I don't know if the Egyptians were outnumbered by the Israelites at this point in time, but Pharaoh could see that coming on the horizon, and it gave him pause, and it gave him fear. Right? And so what we see is that this Pharaoh, um, the thing he's known for is he oppresses God's people. Right? Remember, those who curse you, I will curse. That's what God promised to Abram generations before. Those that bless you, I will bless. Those that curse you, I will curse. And I will bless all of the nations of the earth through you and through your family. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, right? And so we see that God has already promised that those who come against the people of God will not experience a good fate. And so this Pharaoh oppresses God's people. Why does he do it? Well, he does it because he doesn't know Yahweh. And because he doesn't know, he doesn't not know Yahweh, nor does he know the, the representatives of, of Yahweh. Right? So we saw former Egyptian pharaohs when Joseph was in their midst, and Joseph would testify to the goodness and to the graciousness of, of the Lord God, the, the God of his fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. When Joseph would, would keep covenant with that God, the Egyptians around would look at that and say, ah, there's something there. This man is honorable. He's integral. He, he, he deals justly with people. And so they entered into, into agreement with Joseph that they would protect him and protect his family and so Joseph in the midst of the Egyptians he represented God and God's people but Joseph is gone he's long gone and now this Pharaoh doesn't know God he doesn't know his people this is one of the reasons why we talk all the time about the fact that accessibility is is really the the the, the key thing that 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 um that, that God is doing in and through his people, that he wants, to, the reason we go after geographic, or go after things with geographic intentionality and push you out into the neighborhoods that you live in and into the workplaces that you work in is that you are God's representative in those places. He wants, he wants you to be accessible to the people around you. Pharaoh didn't have that. At the same time, Pharaoh saw himself as a god. He, um, Egyptian... Um, uh, e e Egyptian culture and the religion of the day there saw him not as a fully divine God, not even like we would see Jesus as the Son of God, one who is fully divine and fully human, but they saw him as partially divine, that he, was, that, he was, um, that he came from the Sun God, from Ra, and so he would have been somebody that they would have feared and obeyed without question or without concern. And so he could say anything he wanted, and any Egyptian would say, yes, 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 yes. He was one to be worshipped. He put himself in a position that only Yahweh could actually be in. 
The interesting thing is he had all the power that you could imagine a king in a nation could ever have. And yet rather than living in confident expectation that that power would bring forth for him a better life and existence, he lives in fear. Right? That's what the text tells us. He, he's fearful of the ever-increasing influence of a group of, of, of ragtag shepherds who live in his midst. I mean, at this point in time, they're not slaves. He's going to enslave them. At this point in time, they're just a nomadic people who have shepherded for all of their existence, right? And so he sees their ever-increasing numbers. Uh, I mean, they're like cockroaches. They just keep growing and keep growing and keep growing and keep growing and keep growing, right? He sees these ever-increasing numbers, and it causes him fear, and he begins to operate out of that fear. And out of that fear, right, um, out of that fear, he begins to oppress them, and he begins to kill them. He puts them into slave labor, right? He puts them into slave labor, and so we see these two cities, Pithom and Ramses, these two huge store cities, these cities that, that would, would um, be monuments to the Egyptian empire, right? They're built on the backs of Hebrew slaves, right? And so we see that. We see him oppress them by sending them out in the fields, and then, then we see that when that's not enough, he seeks to kill the, the, the male babies, right? He wants to kill them. He wants to eradicate them because he, he you know, that's what fear does, right? Power, we think, oftentimes, we think power is something to have. And that if I have power, I have influence, I have money, I have, I have influence. If I have resources, I have influence. And that influence buys me the opportunity to do what I want and to get what I want in life and to have what I want. But what we see, actually, when we look out into society and we see those that have power, we recognize, A, they're rarely satisfied with power, right? One of my, I'm a Springsteen guy. Any other Springsteen people here? You all should repent right now and go out. In Badlands, Bruce has a line where he says, poor man wants to be rich, rich man wants to be king, but a king ain't satisfied till he rules everything. And that's the thing about power. For those of us in the poor man's position, we look at the rich guy and we think, man, if I just had what he had. For those of us in the, in the rich guy's position, we think, man, if I just had a little bit of influence and power here. But even the guy who has everything looks and says, it's not enough. Right? And that's, what, that, that's part of the lie it's interesting to me when it says that Pharaoh decided to deal shrewdly with them. Man, when I read that, all I can think of is the serpent who tried to deal shrewdly with Eve, right? It's a lie that says, eh, we're going to deal with these people in such a way that we get from them what we want. We protect ourselves. And so power leaves this man in a position where rather than, rather than recognizing the treasure that he actually has in his midst, the people of God, and therefore the opportunity to know God Himself. He rejects it. He pushes against it. He seeks to eradicate it. He seeks to destroy it. He sets Himself up against God. And He tries to employ the, 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 the workings of these two women, Shifra and Pua, right? These two midwives. Now, they're not the, probably the only two midwives in, in, uh, in and among the Hebrews, but they're probably uh, women of influence in and among the midwife community, if there is such a thing, right? Um, and so these women would have been themselves 
unable to bear children, and so that's how they would have been conscripted into uh, the vocation of midwifery, right? They would have been unable themselves, they would have been barren. And so because they didn't have children of their own, they would come and they would assist in the birthing process and in the, in the early days of rearing a baby because they had the time to do so because they themselves um, weren't obligated to take care of anyone at home. And so Pharaoh comes to these women and he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to kill every male Hebrew baby that's born, right? When the mother is giving birth to it, I want you, when you take the baby out, you see it's a boy, I want you to kill it. Now, I had four babies, right? I was in there four times, right? My father, the first time I had a baby, he said, you're, you're actually going to be in the room? I was like, you weren't? He's like, I went to work. I dropped your mother off. I didn't want to be anywhere in the building. I went to the office, waited for a phone call, and then came and picked her up. Like, what are you talking about? No, I wasn't in the building, right? I can't imagine in that moment when one of my kids was born, right, the, the, the nurse, right? I mean, I, I, remember, I remember catching the kid and cutting the thing and being disgusted at what it smelled like and handing it off to say clean it bring it back when it's nice right like you can't imagine like what do you mean the baby died what 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 do you mean you killed it like i can't imagine how that would have gone right these women they were they were they were they were tasked to take a baby right out of the womb the joy of a mother the joy of a father and then to just kill it and they couldn't do it they wouldn't do it and they didn't do it because not because they feared pharaoh although i'm sure they did they didn't do it because they feared God. Now, what's interesting to me as I think about this is, again, generations have passed since the time of Joseph. So we don't really know what the Israelites who were living in the midst of, the, of, of, of Egypt, what they fully even remembered to be true about the God of their fathers. We don't really know, right? Because Moses later, we're going to see Moses is like, God, if you tell me to go to him, I'll go to him. But I'm going to go to him and they're not even going to know who I represent. And then later, even after God begins to deliver them out, they begin to say, man, we were way better off when we lived in Egypt. Right? These are a people who, who, are, who, are coven- who God is covenantally connected to and tethered to who don't yet fully understand even who he is. There's remnants of it. And I would say that these two women are remnants of those who feared the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Even though they might not have fully understood who he was or what he was doing or what he was about to do, there was some semblance of understanding that God is someone to be feared. This king, this king can take my life, but God deals with my soul. And because he has the authority to deal permanently with who I am, my soul, my, 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 my entire being, I'm going to choose to obey him rather than this temporal This understanding that because God was enthroned in the heavens, that he dictated what was right and what was wrong, what honored him, what dishonored him, what was good, what was evil. And these women, as as potentially ignorant in the things of God as maybe they were, I don't know, they chose, they chose to honor God over honoring themselves. Because this was a position of influence in in Egypt. If, If you did what the king asked you to do, that would gain you favor. They actually did it in a, in, 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 a, in a way of laying down their own lives, potentially, for these boys. And they got away with it for a long time. Scholars tell us that Egyptian boys and Egyptian girls looked exactly the same up until they were about the time of 12. They dressed them the same, you know what I mean? They, they had the same haircuts, the same deal. So all of a sudden, years later, 
As Pharaoh finds out, why are all these Hebrew boys still alive? Comes to these women. He says, what did you do? Right? Shifra and Pua, they feared God. Because they feared God, they obeyed God. They trusted Him, His real power, in opposition to Pharaoh's supposed power. And as a result, they were instruments of God's deliverance, His faithful deliverance of His people. I want you to think about that for a minute. The very thing that you and I have been called to as followers of Jesus Right? We've been called into relationship with God the Father through God the Son, fueled by God the Spirit. Right? We've been called to, to, to be in relationship with Him. And then as, his, as those who are in relationship with Him, we are called to represent Him in the world. And what that means is not just, hey, look at me, I'm a Christian, I do the right thing. But it's, it's, it's engaged in a mission that says, I am in the process of, of bringing people, God is using me to bring people from death to life. I'm an instrument of God's deliverance. Him delivering those who are, are His people, those who are about to be His people, those who He longs to be His people. And Shifra and Pua are for us forerunners of the call that we were, have been called with and called to. They're holy women. Peter talks about um, these women. You know, Mike and I were talking about this the other day in the car. Sophie and I were talking about this passage of Scripture uh, as... as um, as we were engaging in, in some conversation the other night, Peter, when he's writing to his audience in First Peter, when he's writing to these exiles throughout the Roman world, he encourages wives to come alongside and to submit themselves to their husband. That's right, and he, he invokes the holy women of old. He invokes Sarah, and he talks about true beauty, and, and, and he says that this is the way you should be like the holy women of old. I believe this is in 1 Peter 3, 9. You should be like the holy women of old who they submitted themselves to their own husbands. And then there's this second part of this verse that we never, ever focus on. But to me, it's just one of the most powerful things. Because he says, they submitted to their own husbands, and they did not fear that which was frightening. They didn't fear that which was frightening, right? And so Peter, in saying that, is saying, he's not saying like, like there weren't things to be afraid of in the world. No, there were things to be terrified of. But the holy women of old, women like Sarah, I would say women like Shifra and Pua, rather than succumbing to the fear of that which was frightening, they recognized that the God of, of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, Right? the God of the Scriptures, that Jesus was bigger than whatever it was in their life that was terrifying. And they chose to fear Him instead. To come in and underneath His law, His rule, His reign. To recognize that in Him is refuge and His safety and His protection. And that it doesn't matter what man can do to me. Jack and I, my son, we were reading the other night out of Psalm 56, right? Psalm 56.3 says, uh, David says, when I am afraid, I will trust in you. What is man that he could do anything to me, David says? My hope is in the Lord, right? Our hope is in the Lord. And Shifra and Pua are women who, like you and I, had a choice to make in the midst of just hard circumstances in life. Right? When, when you turn on the news, right? Like I was joking with Bob earlier, you know, we've got a congregation of Liberians that meet in our building, right? Hmm, hmm, um, hmm. There are new people from Liberia every day coming into our building. Hmm. Am I afraid of that? No. No. Just a little hand sanitizer, we're going to be okay. 
It's all good. Right? There are fearful things in the world. Maybe this evening you are facing something that terrifies you. It might be a relationship. It might be a work thing. It might be sickness. It might be death. It might, who knows what it is? The holy women of old, they didn't fear that which was frightening. These women, they didn't fear Pharaoh. Instead, it, the, the Scripture says in verse 17 and in verse 21, they feared God. And because they feared God, they operated in a di- under a different set of circumstances and under a different uh, set of rules. And you and I have that same opportunity. The world around us right now is terrified of Ebola or of ISIS or of the economy or of this or of that, whatever it is, right? We've got nothing to be afraid of. Nothing. Nothing. Doesn't matter what the world throws at you. Doesn't mean that you're not going to suffer because as we'll see, the people of God still suffer. They suffer greatly. But they're able to suffer as those who have hope because they see the faithful hand of their God delivering them even in the midst of hardship and of turmoil. Verse verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives. Right? Pharaoh comes to them and says, why did you do this? And they said, ah, well, you know, these ladies, they're vigorous, right? You know, I mean, they just pop the things out, right? I'm sure that they had some sort of system that said, when you're about to give birth, don't call us. We'll come when the baby's born, right? After it's all said and done, right? Don't. But God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families, right? We see that God continues to bless His people even in the midst of their suffering. He continues to increase in uh, that. They continue to increase in keeping with God's promises. And then we see these two women, right? They're delivered from two things. Number one, they're delivered from the wrath of Pharaoh. Because I would think that Pharaoh would have killed them. But he doesn't. And we see the faithful hand of God. And then it says to us this, that God blessed them with families. And remember, these are women that are midwives. They're, they're women that most likely are barren. And they, are, they fall into this unbelievable line of women in the Scripture. Right? I want you to think about this for a second. Sarah. Right? Sarah's 90 years old before her first baby is born. Barren. Rachel. Right? Shifra and Pua, if we're going to go chronologically. Hannah, Elizabeth, John's mother, right? And I'm even going to say Mary, because Mary has no opportunity to have a child at the time she had a child. All women, where the scriptures talk about the fact that God opens a womb that was shut, that which was dead, God is going to bring forth life out of these women. And in so doing, he will continue to, in blessing these people, he will continue to bring forth his promises. Now, as I say bless these people, I say it in a very non-Joel Osteen way. All right? I say it in a biblical way. Because here's what I know about the blessing of God. The blessing of God is God himself. That is the blessing of God. It's God himself. It's not about a new car. 
It's not about what you believe to be true about yourself. It's not about, you know, whatever. That's all garbage. God blesses his people with relationship with him. He does that primarily through his son. That is the only way that we have relationship with him. Then he places his spirit within us and he continues to bless us with his presence. And we then have now a new and living hope, the scripture tells us, because we know as the people of God that regardless of what happens in this life, that I will spend eternity face to face with my living king, with the God of the universe, the one that I've worshiped for all of these years. And that is the blessing of God. Now, at the same time, God does give temporal blessings. We see that he gave these two women children. Now, you might say, well, children are in a temporal blessing. I hope they are, right? <laughs> As a young father, I <laughs> someday. But even my children, I hold them with a hand like this, right? Everything God's given me in this life is a blessing. There's no doubt about it. But they're temporary. I can't take them into the next life. But I go into the next life fully confident that I will, A, I'll see them, but that I'll spend eternity with Him. And that is the truest and the greatest blessing. It's interesting as we close this down to see what Pharaoh does. Pharaoh's response is to is rather than to, to just um, go to the midwives, he now goes to the whole nation and he says, here's what I want you to do. When you see a Hebrew boy be born, I want you to take him and I want you to throw him in the water. Right Now, they lived on the banks of the Nile and so in their mythology, they believed that the Nile was itself a, you know, divine. Had some sense of, 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 of God-like characteristic. And so the thought was that anyone who fell into the Nile, if they survived that, then the Nile gave them life. But if they didn't survive that, then obviously the gods had decided their fate and were going to take them. And I think it's such an interesting thing, right? So they're, they're supposed to dash these babies into, into the water. And it's a way to kind of alleviate their own guilt. Like, look, if they survive, eh, they're good. Right? And if they die, I didn't kill them, but God's killed them. And yet, here's what we'll find very interesting, I think, next week, and then even later on, is there is a Hebrew baby who gets cast into the Nile. Right? There's a Hebrew baby that the Nile gives back. And he gives him back because God protected said Hebrew baby. His name is Moses. And the Pharaoh that cast all these other babies into the sea is the very same one that allowed this Hebrew baby. He knew he was a Hebrew baby because he survived. And so he brings him then into his own home, nurtures him as his grandson, lets him, lets him raise up to become prominent in his home. Right? God shaping and protecting a deliverer. At the same time, if you fast forward, Midway through the book, we see the ultimate expression of deliverance in the book of Exodus at the Red Sea. When God's people go through the water on dry land, God saves them. And what happens to Pharaoh's sons? They're all dashed in water. Consumed. Because again, those that bless you, I will bless. Those that curse you, I will curse. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I'm going to invite the band to come up. As we close this part of the service down, I just want you to think about your own life in regard to the things that you fear, the things that cause you anxiety, the things that cause you stress. Like Pharaoh, are you somebody that grasps for power, that grasps for things? 
Are you somebody that, that, that holds on to dear life and, and is willing to exploit other people so that you get your own gain? Or are you like these two midwives, Shifra, Pua? Interesting thing about Shifra and Pua. In Exodus 1 through 5, there are only a handful of people that are named. Joseph and his brothers, the offspring of Jacob. Moses and his brother, Aaron. And these two women. And naming is such an honorable thing in the scriptures. God chose not to name Pharaoh. We just know he was a Pharaoh. God gave him no honor. But God honored these women. Now they're not mentioned anywhere else in the scripture. But they're honored here. And they're honored as instruments of, of God's deliverance of his people. And they're the types of people that we should long to emulate. We don't know that they were like rich theologically. We don't know that they were rich monetarily. We don't, know, we don't know much about them, but here's what we know. They were willing to take what little or much that they knew about God, to believe it to be true, to trust him in the midst of everything, and in so doing to be used by God to save a generation of people. May we be those types of people. I'm going to pray for us. Father, we come in Jesus' name. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for all that you've done. We thank you for the many ways that you continue to demonstrate your faithfulness to us. We thank you for the way that you have saved us in Christ Jesus. The way that you've delivered us out of death into life. The way that you have, you have reached into our existence. And snatched us out of the hand of the wicked one. And brought us into a place of fellowship with you. God, if there are any in this room this evening who don't yet know you, we pray, our hearts cry, would be that today would be the day that they reach out and say, Jesus, save me. That today would be the day where your spirit draws them to yourself and they come and they say, oh, Lord Jesus, save me. And Father, for those of us who are yours already, we pray that we would not live in fear, that we would not live in worry about what men or man or sickness or disease or death can do to us, but that we would live in a confident expectation that you are good, that you are God, that we would fear you, that that, that fear would cause us to live lives that represent who you are, that demonstrate that you are alive, that you are good, that you are for your people. And God, may you then use those lives as opportunities to share the gospel with others. Lord, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.